0: Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Spreading the Word. I'm your host, Paul Bizanti, and again, we are bringing a special episode to you tonight. This is session number two from guest speaker Sean Dutile at our 40th annual men's retreat hosted by the men of the Waterloo Church of Christ Congregation in Ontario. We are continuing on our theme of seeking to be faithful in our generation and We are more specifically focusing on Faithful at Home, the Battle of the Christian Life. Sean dives into the book of Exodus here to look at the battle against the Amalekites, and he uses this to extrapolate a lot of really valuable lessons and some personally convicting ones for me as well. And I hope that you can be as encouraged and as convicted to dedicate more trust to God in helping you be faithful at home. So without any further ado, here's Sean.
1: So our theme for the weekend is seeking to be faithful in our generation. Uh, Last night we talked a little bit about uh, faithful within and the need to look within ourselves and to have um, to really do the hard work of of, of of recognizing the darkness within and turning to Jesus our Savior to have it, to have Him slowly sanctify us by His Spirit. So tonight I want to talk about uh, being faithful at home uh, with our families, but just kind of in general what it means to fight or live uh, the Christian life, battle the Christian life together. So I want to start our time tonight by reading a passage from Exodus 17 that we're going to take our time Uh, perusing through. Exodus 17, starting in verse 8, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites, as Moses had ordered, uh, and Moses, Aaron, and Ur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning... But when he lowered, whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Ur held, up his, held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek, from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is My Banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. All right, so four things I want to look at in this passage tonight. Uh, Number one, I want to look at the, uh, the battle of the Christian life. Secondly, I want to talk about the way to win and the way to lose that battle. Thirdly, I want to talk about the rod who guarantees victory. And then the fourth thing I want to talk about is uh, considerations for holding up the rod of Christ. So I want to discuss those four things tonight. So Exodus 17 and maybe even this story is probably not a story that uh, is familiar uh, or that, that you could regularly recollect uh, easily, It's not talked about much, but I believe we see some significant uh, insights into the Christian life uh, from it. So So uh, the battle that takes place here in Exodus 17 is actually the only battle recorded in the book of Exodus. It's the only fight scene we see, okay? Uh, and so if, so Exodus 1 through 13, uh, is the record of how the Lord came to His people in their distress. And so if we were to, we were to choose a uh, summary uh, vor- verse for those 13 chapters, it would probably be chapter 3, verse 7, where it says, The Lord um, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. So the first 13 chapters of Exodus record God's coming to rescue His people in their distress. Chapters 13 through 18 is the second section of Exodus, and it records how the Lord went with His people on their pilgrimage. So 1 through 13 is God coming to rescue. 13 through 18 is God journeying with them. Uh, and so the, probably the theme verse of those chapters is chapter 13, 21, where He says, By the day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. So I want you to notice that uh, these two sections of Exodus also follow the Christian life. The first part of our life before Christ is about God coming down to us in our distress. Our lives before Christ are an interweaving of experiences all of which ultimately lead us back to the uh, backbreaking conviction that the gods we have served in Egypt have always been fighting against us, not for us. Okay? Our life before Christ is dotted with God's movement to bring us to a place of crying out to Him in our distress for rescue from the taskmasters that have been fighting against us. And so, for example, before you're a Christian... You serve the God of money only until that God nearly kills you. Uh, You serve the God of sex only until that God enslaves you. You serve the God of drugs and alcohol only until that God nearly destroys you. You serve the God of your own decision making until decision after decision after decision ends in failure. And so one thing I preach with regularity at Water's Edge is the fact that until the pain, of serving your chosen taskmaster exceeds the fear of serving the true God that you don't know much about yet. You're not ready to cross the Red Sea into freedom. So until the Israelites in Egypt were, um, uh, until the pain of serving the Egyptians uh, 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 exceeded the fear of serving a God they didn't know much about yet anymore, they weren't really ready to change. And so, so that's our life before Christ. Before you cross the Red Sea, God is bringing you to a breaking point of crying out to Him in your distress because of the taskmasters that you've served, right? But after we've crossed the Red Sea, okay, after we have believed in Christ when He says, I will fight for you, after we have repented of serving false gods, after we have confessed our sins, after we have been baptized in water, thereby allowing the blood of Jesus to pronounce judgment on our sins and freedom to our souls, just as the Red Sea pronounced judgment on the Egyptians and freedom to the Israelites. After we've done all these things, we now enter into a life in the desert led by God's Spirit on our way to the promised land. Okay? But on the way to the promised land... Um, There's a long desert wandering called life. Okay? Which is where we are right now. And sometimes that life feels rather long and rather arduous, doesn't it? And so, um, if you're a Christian today, that means you are past the Red Sea, you are saved from the Egyptian gods you used to serve, but you are not yet in the promised land of eternity with God, but instead you are journeying with God, led by His Spirit in this desert called life. Okay? And the persistent battle we face in the desert called life is the battle against a, an enemy called Amalek. How so? It says in verse 8 of chapter 17, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel, At Rephidim. Okay, so now again, this is the only battle scene in the entire book of Exodus, but it's not the only enemy that Israel faces, right? So the first enemy is of course the Egyptians. The Egyptians were fighting against Israel, and what's interesting is that in the first 13 chapters, God refused to share the battle against Egypt with anyone else. In other words, from Exodus 1 to 13, God alone is the warrior in the story who is taking action against the Egyptians. That's what the ten plagues were, and, and that's what the parting of the Red Sea is. That was God warring on behalf of his people. And if you remember, the first time that someone tried to assist God in getting the Israelites to the Red Sea, uh, God snuffed them out in a heartbeat. Okay? And that person was Moses. Remember that? Moses, uh, in his own strength, tried to fight for the Israelites and, 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 and by killing the Egyptian. And God said, I don't think so. Okay, I don't need your help. Go spend some time in Midian until I'm ready for you. Okay? So, uh, and so this corresponds, I want you to see, this corresponds to our own process of salvation too. If you were to play, if you were to play pin the tail on the donkey with world religions by listing all the world religions on a piece of paper and then spinning yourself around blindfolded and pinning the tail in your dizziness on that wall. Okay, Unless you pin the tail on Christianity or Judaism, you would, uh, you would have pinned the tail on a religion which tells you some way to save yourself. Okay? Some way for you to help God get you across the Red Sea. God says, no, that didn't work. So, for example, uh, now see, now not all religions believe that you need saving from the same thing. But all religions believe uh, that something's not right with the world, and they offer a solution to the problem, which involves your proactivity. Okay? And so if you do these things, if you keep these rituals, if you do these things, and especially if you don't do these things, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you will be saved, or you'll reach enlightenment, or you'll find nirvana, or you'll get your ten virgins, or whatever the case may be. Okay, so, so only the Bible says this. Are you ready? It says, there is something definitely wrong with the world, but there's not a thing you can do to save yourself from it. God says, I don't need your help. I don't want your help. Okay, only the Bible says, the Bible says God alone can save you, and the moment you think you have the power to make right What is wrong with yourself and what is wrong with the world is the moment you refuse the salvation that God alone can provide. God says, I'm the Savior here, not you. I'll get you across the Red Sea. Sit back. Once you've crossed the Red Sea, then I'll employ you. Does that make sense? Um, So then what does the Bible say the problem with the world is? Well, the Bible says the problem with the world is sin. Okay, so what's sin? What sin is the problem with the world? Well, it depends on who you ask, right? <laughs> so if you talk to a liberal, or if you are a liberal, you believe that greed is the sin, and so you want the wealthy to be taxed hard and corporations to be heavily regulated, right? We're all for more taxation and to keep those greedy people under wrap, okay? But if you're a conservative, you believe that sexual immorality is the sin, and so you want the government to outlaw various forms of sexual morality and their consequences. And I want you to hear this. Both liberals and conservatives have identified true sins. And both sins bring untold devastation to humanity. You know why the American slave trade happened? Because of greed. You know why our families are broken today? Because of sexual morality. And they're so intertwined that they can't be divided. And so we can see one side, but we can't see our own sin oftentimes, okay? So um, when the Bible talks about sin, though, it's not talking about a sin, okay? Uh, When the Bible talks about sin at its root, it's not talking about one particular sin. Instead, it's talking about a posture of the heart. And when the posture of sin is present... In the human heart, it will manifest in various forms of greed and sexual morality among a world of other things. Okay? So, for example, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were not guilty of apple eating. Okay? They were guilty of a posture of heart which resulted in apple eating. Okay? So, what was their posture of heart? It was, it was, it was, a, it was pride. Okay? Sin at its root is pride. Sin is saying, I got this I don't need anybody to tell me what to do or how to live, okay? I don't have to submit to anything or anyone. I can be my own god. That's sin. Okay? Sin is also saying there's nothing wrong with me that I can't fix on my own or that I need anyone's help for. Okay? Sin is the effort of living autonomously without God and without a need for God. And God is at war from generation to generation with that satanic principle. Well, this is what Amalek represents in the Bible. Okay? And what's really interesting is that, is that it's at this point that God invites his people to have a hand in the battle. Okay? It says in verse 9, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. So who is Amalek? Who is Amalek? Not, not, not a guy we talk about much, right? Who is Amalek? Well, the, to answer that question, we've got to back up, and we've got to go to Genesis 25, and to the story of Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 25, Esau tells, uh, sells his birthright to his younger brother Jacob, and after he does so, it says in Genesis 25-34, Esau despised his birthright. You remember that? Okay. Um, and so one thing we come to discover about Esau was that Esau was a self-made man. Okay. Esau probably would have called his brother a sissy and a mama's boy. Okay. Esau despised the fact that he, got a place, that he got to a place of personal weakness because of his thirst, wherein he needed something from his younger brother Jacob, and he vowed never to be so weak or dependent again. Major Ian Thomas said, Why did God hate Esau? God hated Esau because God can do absolutely nothing with a man who will not admit that he needs anything from God. Esau rejected God's means of grace. He repudiated man's need of God's intervention. He despised his birthright, and God never, never forgave him. This, he says, is the basic attitude of sin. Esau said in his heart, Sunday school, Talk. I don't need this kind of kid stuff. I have all it takes to be a man apart from God, okay? Major Ian Thomas would say that in Esau was perpetuated the basic lie perpetuated by Satan in Adam. You are what you are by virtue of what you are and not by virtue of who God is. You can lose God and you've lost nothing, okay? In Esau... The spirit of Satan was incarnate. Esau would never in his life admit his need. He would never surrender and serve. And as a result, God was at war with Esau and his descendants from generation to generation. In fact, the whole book of Obadiah is written to Esau's descendants, the Edomites. And the summary verse there of the whole book of Edom says this. The pride of your heart, Edom has deceived you you who live in the cleft of the rocks and make your home on the heights you who say to yourself who can bring me down to the ground though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars from there i will bring you down declares the lord all right so so what does esau have to do with amalek well genesis 36 verse 12 here's what we read this is the account of the family line of esau the father of the edomites Esau's son, Elipaz, also had a concubine named Timnah, who bore him Amalek. Okay. So Amalek, or the Amalekites, were descendants of Esau. Okay. And just as Malachi tells us that God was at war with Esau from generation to generation, here in verse 16 it tells us that God was at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Because in Amalek... The sin of Esau was perpetuated, okay? So the battle of the Christian life, folks, is the battle against Amalek because Amalek is a picture of the self-made man who does not need God and who seeks to bar bar the onward journey of any who would be dependent on God, okay? But Amalek is also a picture of uh, that satanic lie that threatens to incarnate our hearts every day after we are saved. And that lie whispers, I got this on my own. I can battle against sin on my own. Okay? That's the battle of the Christian life. It's the battle against the satanic principle of self-sufficiency as personified in Amalek and as personified in Esau. And God calls us into that battle. Okay? That's the battle of the Christian life. The second thing I want to see is the way to win and the way to lose that battle. The way to win and the way to lose. So Exodus 17 verse 11, it says, As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites, the Amalekites were winning. And So, so here, here's the application there. When fighting Amalek on this journey to the promised land... There is a way to win and there is a way to lose. Okay? And I want you to think about Moses holding the rod of God high as a picture of faith in a God-given victory. Okay? I want you to think about Moses uh, uh, that the way to win the battle against sin in this life is to get on your knees and to lift up the rod of faith to heaven and say, Lord, I put, f- I put total faith in Christ's ability to win for me, and no faith in my ability to win for myself. Okay? Another way to say this is to say that the faith of Esau says, the faith of Esau says, I believe God can help me when I need him to, but for the most part, I don't need him to. It's a self-made man, right? The faith of Esau says, I believe God can do things for me. But true biblical faith says, I can't do anything without him. The faith of Esau says, God can help me survive. But true biblical faith says, I can't survive without him. Okay, Whenever we set our hearts and minds completely on the efficacy of the Holy Spirit in us to empower us over the Amalek within... And no confidence in our own ability to defeat him ourselves. We have taken the focus off of ourselves. okay, And and in being strong enough or being self-controlled enough. And we have placed the focus completely on Christ for his gifting and his strength. And so whenever we do so against our personal temptations to sin, we begin to win. So whenever we confess in faith that we are no battle for Amalek, we have no power over our own flesh without Christ, we desperately need the intervention of the birthright of grace that Esau so arrogantly refused, whenever we confess with raised arms, we will find that our battle is being won. And so this is what Paul experienced himself as he wrote the book of Romans. Remember? He said, uh, this is Romans 7, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Paul said, I see the Amalek within me. I see sin living in me. And as much as I want to defeat him on my own, I can't. Okay? For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. What are, he says, what a wretch I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Do you you see Paul's method for victory? Paul's method for victory, it, 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 it was not to man up and keep it a secret and try harder next time and tell yourself you can do better if you only read your Bible and pray more, okay? Paul's method for victory over his flesh was to admit total inability to defeat his flesh without a Savior. Okay? Paul said, Lord, come win this battle for me or this battle's not won. Do this for me or it's not done. Lord, I will waste away in this desert a slave to my every inclination unless you come and deliver me to the promised land. Paul said, who who will rescue me? Which implies that he needs a rescuer. He can't save himself, right? Folks, this alone is the kind of faith wherein victory can be found. Okay. Now here's another thing about the battle against Amalek. The battle, again, so we're on this journey in the desert on the way to the Promised Land. It's long. kind of wish we were back in Egypt some days because that was easier. Now we've got all these temptations we have to be aware of. Okay. Um, here's another thing about the battle. The battle is so unceasing and the impending temptations are so relentless as we journey to the Promised Land that you will always weary in that battle on your own. You will always weary in that battle on your own. You need others to battle with you and to help you keep your sights fixed on Christ's power, not your own. And so that's where Aaron and Ur come into play in this story, right? They helped Moses hold up the rod of faith. And whenever a Christian is losing the battle against sin today, nine times out of 10, they are in that battle alone, and this is especially true for guys, okay? If you are secretly struggling with pornography, for an example, you are losing that battle in part because you're in that battle alone, okay? You're in that battle all by yourself because you're too afraid to make it known to anyone else. You're going to beat it on your own. You don't need anyone's help. It's not really a battle. You just slip up every once in a while. Okay? You are losing the battle in part because the spirit of Amalek is incarnating your heart. You have told yourself, you don't need help. You can defeat Amalek on your own and you can't. Okay? The freedom that you could have is hindered by the fact that you want to battle on your own because you are either too afraid of being rejected or too prideful to admit that you don't have your life under control. Okay? And so this fear of rejection, I believe, is complicated by the fact that we no longer have places in our churches where honest confession can be practiced as a general rule. Okay? And it's not just the confession of sin that's no longer practiced. We talked about it last night. It's also the confession to temptation to sin that is also no longer practiced. Okay? And so in most churches today, not only is there not a culture that invites confession, it has often been replaced by a culture that says good Christians don't battle against sin... And if you do battle against sin, you're clearly not a good Christian. Okay? But listen, Paul himself called himself a wretch. You know why? Because he knew he had a battle against his flesh that beat him a whole lot more than he beat it, and he needed a savior. Okay? Folks, the idea that the Christian should not still battle against his flesh if he were really committed to Christ and if he actually crossed the Red Sea is such a putrid lie of the devil that it ought to make us sick. Okay? Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, anybody who lives beneath the cross and who has discerned in the cross of Jesus the utter wickedness of all men and of his own heart will find there is no sin that can ever be alien to him. Anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of a brother. He goes on to say, "'By living under the cross, "'we can hear the worst possible things "'from the best possible people "'without so much as batting an eyelash. "'If we live in that reality, "'we will convey that spirit to others. He says, they know it's safe to come to us. They know we can receive anything they could possibly reveal. They know we will never condescend to them, but instead we will understand. Okay? We no longer have a place in our churches, generally speaking, or a person or persons in our life, generally speaking, for whom we could say, the battle against Amalek is strong today. Would you help me hold up the rod of faith? Because we believe that even confessing that there's a battle means I'm a bad Christian. Okay? The battle God calls us into is not the battle before the Red Sea. It's the battle after the Red Sea and it's the only battle he calls us into. Okay? Uh, one of the reasons I feel like that uh, my counseling practice has been so effective is because there's nothing someone can tell me for which I shall be shocked. I have one lady who comes to me on a weekly basis and and she's so nervous to confess to me what happened the previous week because she struggles with alcohol and she falls to it often and she's getting accountability partners in place but it's not a routine yet and she's always afraid to uh, confess to me. She's like, I I got eight things here and I'm going to leave the worst for last because I hope we don't get to it. (laughs) Okay? This is what she says to me. All right? One of the reasons... uh, uh, that I believe my counseling has been so effective, is because I know that everyone sitting in my office is a filthy, wretched sinner. I just don't know the particular sin. So when they finally confess it, I say, thank you. Was that hard? I knew you were a sinner. I just didn't know which one. Now, can we move on? Okay. We ought to expect that the battle of the Christian life is the battle against Amalek, and it's so unceasing and so repetitive, and you cannot defeat it alone. You can't, okay? So the way, the way to win the battle against Amalek in our lives is to begin with the confession that we cannot win the battle against Amalek without Christ. Not I just need Christ every once in a while like Esau when I'm really weak. No, the, the biblical faith says there's never a time when I'm strong without Christ. Okay? That's how we win, to confess we can't. Okay? We need a rescue. We need a savior. We must say, Lord, come win this battle for me, or this battle is not won. Okay? But the second component of victory is to confess that you, all, that you will always weary in the battle on your own. You will always weary in the battle. You alone by yourself against the wicked Amalek inside will always lose, just as Eve did. Okay. You need people to confess to, and you need people to confess temptation to, and you need a conversation with those couple guys on a regular basis. If you need an Aaron and you need an Ur to help you hold up the rod of faith. Okay. Um, I've personally been blessed by my involvement with Celebrate Recovery uh, over the past four years. I'm the ministry leader with Celebrate Recovery. And I've been blessed by it because it's given me... A weekly place to confess sin and confess temptation too. So at CR, there is a culture of expected confession. In fact, if you want to share at all, you must begin with confession. <laughs> There's, so here's, here's how it goes. So, Hi, my name is Sean. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus. And I struggle with low self-esteem and a continual desire for approval. And I struggle with lust. After that, I can talk. But I have to give my intro first. Is an expected culture of confession. And just knowing that I have at the end of my week, every week, a place where I can just be honest is enough to dissolve some of the power of Amalek in me. Okay? Um, at CR, there's a culture of expectant uh, 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 confession. Uh, so, so that's the way to win. The way to win is to admit you can't and then to ensure that you never battle alone. Okay, so what's the way to lose then? Well, the way to lose is to become like Amalek. Amalek says that the way to win the battle is to try harder, to become stronger, to be more disciplined and to never accept weakness. Right? That, that's, uh, that right there is an image of Moses letting his arms down because it would be the, the equivalent of taking your eyes off of Christ and bringing them parallel to, the, to ourselves. And that is a battle you can never win. Okay. There are countless Christians today, I believe, fighting a losing battle because they are trying in their own strength to overcome the subtleties of sin and of the Amalek within them. And many times these Christians stop going to church altogether because they feel, feel so hypocritical going there. They believe that if anyone knew what they struggled with, they would not associate with them anymore, or they would shame them into right behavior, and the fact is they already have enough shame. They don't need more of it. In thinking this way, they are fighting a battle they cannot win. They picture God standing above them, arms folded, waiting for them to finally get it together. Then you can come to church, right? They believe that by trying really hard against temptation, they will get to a place of pure living, whereby it can be said that they are finally walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And at that point, it would be safe to return to church again. Okay? But th- that, that is not the way to victory, folks. If that's the way to victory, then the fact is, when you have minor victories you will find yourself five feet deeper underground than when you started, why? Because the very root of sin, the very root of Amalek, the very root of Esau says, I don't need help. I'm strong enough on my own. So I got it together on my own. Now I'm back to church, and I'm worse than where I started, okay? Whenever you say, I can defeat Amalek, you confess that you do not need a savior. (laughs) It's the really bad people that need a Savior, not me. It's the liberals that need a Savior, not me. Right? And here's what you need to see walking by the Spirit and not according to, to the flesh, as, as Paul words it in Romans, is not a reward of good living. Let me say it again. Walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh is not a reward of good living. Walking by the Spirit is not the thing we will graduate to when we finally get our lives in order. Walking by the Spirit is the only way to get our lives in order. Unless you walk by the Spirit, you cannot get your life in order because walking by the Spirit means that you are walking with the raised rod of faith saying, Lord, unless you save, I'm not saved. Okay? Holy Spirit, empower me or I have no power. Give me victory or I have no victory. Give me power over my flesh or my flesh will most surely empower me. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit is to walk completely and totally by His strength alone, confessing along the way your own powerlessness and need for mercy and strength and saying, like Paul, what a wretch I am who will save me. Okay? In this way, folks, walking by the Spirit is not a reward for good living. Walking by the Spirit is the only way for us to reach good living against Amalek, okay? So we see the battle of the Christian life. The battle is the battle against that satanic principle as emulated in Amalek, as emulated in Esau. It's that self-made man, I can do it on my own. That's the battle after the Red Sea. The way to win the battle is to admit that you can't and to invite others alongside to help you hold up the rod of faith. And the way to lose the battle is to trick ourselves into believing we got this. We got this. Once I get my life in order, I'll go back to church. You'll never get your life in order that way. Okay? The third thing we see is the rod who guarantees victory. The rod who guarantees victory. So when we think about the rod that Moses held up a part of us wants to know what was special about that rod. You know, was it a dogwood? <laughs> was, it a, was it a hard oak branch? You know, what was special about that rod? Uh, we, he held up the rod and they won. He let it down and they lost. And we say, what's special about that rod? Okay, in a very real sense, all of us want to know, don't we? All of us want to know what it is that we can offer up to God such that when he sees it, he will come and make life favorable for us down here. See, God, I'm giving this to you. Now come help me. Okay? Some people feel like if they lift up to God their moral achievements, he will be favorable to them. Some people feel if they go to church regularly, this is the thing to hold up to God, to invite his response. Now God's going to bless me. Okay? Some people feel like if they do enough good things... It will make up for all the bad they have done, and that, and, and that can be what they hold up to God for his favor. Okay? Other people feel like if they give to charities, God will see that and shower down blessings. So other people feel like being a good mom or a good spouse or a good caregiver of my parents is what I can lift up to God and receive his favor, and indeed, all of those things are good things. Okay? But truth be told, nothing we hold up to God will be enough to give us His eternal favor. We need something more. So in John chapter 12, Jesus said this. He said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So in this passage, Jesus said, first of all, that the prince of this world will be driven out. And he was talking about the prince which incarnated Esau and Amalek, the prince of darkness, Satan himself. Jesus said it's time for that prince to be driven out. A rod, so you know, a rod of a shepherd that Moses would have held, a rod of a shepherd, uh, could be used to keep the sheep in at night, but it could also be used to drive something out. Okay? So Jesus said it's time for the prince of this world to be driven out as by a shepherd's rod. And then Jesus said what that rod is. Okay. What is that rod? which will eliminate the wicked prince's influence in this world? What is that rod which we can hold up to guarantee our victory? Is it a mighty army? Is it a new government? Is it war? What is that rod? Okay. In verse 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In this verse, Jesus says that he was both the shepherd's rod that scares out the wicked predator and the rod that is lifted up by our hands. Okay? It is Jesus that we hold up to God and say, please, Lord, show us your favor, as Jesus, our rod, already received our punishment. It is Jesus we hold up to the devil and say, because of what Jesus did, I am free. I'm no longer what I used to be. You can no longer accuse me. You, you have no right to me anymore because Jesus, my rod, made me new. It is Jesus whom we must forever hold up before us as the promise of our victory against Amalek. Okay? So Jesus is the sacrifice we offer for our victory because it was Jesus who was lifted up from the earth on the cross. It is Jesus the community of faith must hold up together. It is Jesus lifted up before us who promises to crush the evil Amalek underfoot. And when we lift Jesus up before us each day, we we say, Father, unless Jesus be lifted up before me, I am no match for the evil Amalek. Unless Jesus is raised before me, I am lowered eternally. Unless Jesus be the victor, I have no victory. I cannot lead my family without him. I cannot lead myself without him. I cannot save my marriage without him. I cannot lead my church without him. Let Jesus be lifted up before me and I will stand. But let me stand alone on this hill called life and I shall plummet to my death. True faith, folks, is not saying, yeah, I believe God can do things for me. True faith is saying, I believe I can do nothing Without him. Jesus said that. Said, Apart from me you can do nothing. Okay. A faith which leads to defeat. Is a faith which says. I just said that. Folks the, the rod which guarantees our victory. And the victory of our families. Is Jesus Christ. So as we close. Let me, let me share with you four ways. Four ways to hold up the rod of Jesus Christ in your family and in your life. Uh, Two ways of which we talked about last night. The other two ways I'll expand upon a little bit. Four ways to hold up the rod of faith in your home by which you say, my family, my kids will never be faithful unless Jesus Christ be king of me and the rest. Okay. Four ways. Number one, we talked about it last night. Confessional relationships. You cannot defeat... Amalek on your own. And there's a satanic lie that inhabits, it seems to me, every male I've ever come in contact with that says, I just need to try a little harder. i got to read my Bible more. I'm not praying enough, etc., etc. You need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. But that alone will not save you. You need help holding up the rod of Jesus Christ. Okay? We need confessional relationships. And so uh, we talked last night, a couple couple of us did, that it's hard to find those sorts of men, isn't it? Because all of us are afraid that if I share with someone my struggle, maybe they'll hold it against me. Maybe they'll give a jaw drop. I can't believe you did that. We're afraid. And by the way, if you share a sin struggle with someone and the result is they say, oh my goodness, you chose the wrong person. (laughs) Because they're not even aware of their own sin. Anyone, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, anyone who has any awareness at all of the deep darkness inside of them will not be shocked by the worst confession of the best Christian. Oh, good, you're, you're a sinner too. Thank you. Now can we move on? Okay. We need confessional relationships, not just people to go to church with. And so those relationships, honestly, they take effort. They take a conversation like this, say, hey, Paul, um, I've just been struggling with some things and I just need someone to, I don't know, uh, share my temptations with. Uh, I don't need the answers, I guess. I just, I just need to share it. Can, can we grab coffee once a week maybe and, and, and just, would you be willing? Yes, I'd be willing. Okay, there you go. Now, we test that relationship. I don't, I don't throw up everything in the first visit. But I share a little bit and I say, maybe, maybe Paul is trustworthy. And depending on how he handles that, next time I'll share more. Okay? So I understand uh, uh, sharing stuff with guys is hard, but there's no other way to hold up the rod of faith. You cannot win alone. No one. Okay? Those types of relationships, folks, are crucial in our lives. And we need to be able to call on those guys in the moment of temptation, or shortly thereafter. So the, the, first rod of, the first thing we need to hold up, the first thing we need in order to help us hold up the rod of Christ is confessional relationships. Okay? So I, I know that those are hard to form, but we need to work toward forming those. Second thing is what, I, what I'm calling meaningful prayer. We talked about this a little bit last night, but uh, it's not just prayer, uh, uh, a, 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 um, a request list, Okay. So you know, I, can, I, can, um, I can know your name, I can know where you're from, I can know how old you are, I can know where you went to school, I can know uh, what you do for work, and know nothing about you. The only way I can really know something about you is if you share with me some of what you feel about your work, about your stage in life, about... Uh, your fears, your anxieties, your joys. I don't really know you until you share with me something that I could not have known just by observation. And I say that to say this. If you have any friendships at all in your life, uh, and and a lot of guys don't, but if you have any friendships that are meaningful to you, they're meaningful to you not because you talk about the Blue Jays. I almost said Red Sox. (laughs) 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 Almost. Back up. (laughs) Thank you. I need to to confess that sin. Um, They're meaningful to you because, not because you talk about the Blue Jays, but because in talking about the Blue Jays, you share about the things that are actually on your heart. And you don't really know someone until you do. So, how does that relate to prayer? If you're just sharing with God your prayer requests, that's not a relationship. A relationship is, is prayer in which God gets all of you. And you need to make space for that. God, I'm not feeling good today. God, I really want to kill someone today. <laughs> God, I'm struggling. I don't feel like I, I can do this. I don't want to reach out to anybody. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling angry. I don't know why. All these, Does God get all of that? Or does he just get, God, would you help me with X, Y, and Z today? Meaningful prayer. Prayer in which you say to God everything. That's on your heart. And I really encourage that to be a vocal prayer and not a mental prayer, okay? Do your prayers take that form? Now, I know that may sound a little irreverent to us Church of Christer's, uh, but God wants a relationship, okay? Not a, not a form, Meaningful prayer, prayer in which God gets all of you, uh, a second crucial component to holding up the water, of Christ. Thirdly, and we know this one, Scripture study, right? Uh, the way humanity, so the, the, most, the, the most popular counseling uh, theory in the world today is called CBD, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And basically cognitive behavioral therapy says what you think about affects how you feel, which affects how you behave. So if you think that you're a loser, you feel like crap, you behave lethargically, right? And I agree with that, because Romans 12 would say, uh, be be transformed the renewing of your mind, because what you think about affects how you feel, which will ultimately affect how you behave. The reason it's so popular is because it's the way God made us. One of the things we need in order to fight this Amalek is the renewing of our mind... Which affects how we feel, which then affects how we behave. So scripture study is, is that, that's where transformation begins, and the renewing, the thinking, uh, the, the, the inserting of truth into your mind. So we need confessional relationships, we need meaningful prayer, we need scripture study, and the last thing I'll say is this, and this is hard for Americanites and probably Canadians too: Routined rest. It's not even a word, but I made it up. Routine rest. Our culture has so effectively convinced us that we are human doings, not human beings. Would you agree? And the result is that we feel worthless unless we are doing something productive all the time. Did you know that uh, Adam and Eve's first day of, on Earth was a day of rest? They asked the question, rest from what? Nothing! They hadn't worked yet, right? So what's up with that? God, in the very beginning of time, set a precedent in the garden that mankind was supposed to jump into the work week from a place of rest. He did not intend that they would get to the end of their week dying to get some rest like the majority of us do, okay? When you begin your work week from a place of rest, you will work much differently than if rest were just about letting your muscles recover. Consider this, before their first day of work, Adam and Eve could rest in these truths. Adam could say to Eve, Eve, look around this garden. Look at all that God has made for us. Look, God has completely provided for us here. There is nothing, Eve, that we don't have. There's nothing right now that we don't lack. Look at the beauty he made for us. Smell the smells. Look at all the abundance we have in this place upon no effort of our own. Eve, God has fully provided for us here, and he has done it without any contribution of our own part. Folks, when you begin your work week upon this spiritual place of rest, work becomes about something totally different than it was before. The vast majority of people today, the vast majority of Christians today, live by the illusion that we provide for ourselves through work. The vast majority of Christians today believe that we provide for ourselves through work. And it is that lie... We live by the fictitious notion that it's up to us, as men, to put food on our tables and make sure we have enough. And it's that lie which makes true rest virtually impossible for all of us. Folks, there is no way to experience the sort of rest God intended us to experience if we jump into our work weeks thinking that we are providing for ourselves Because that is not what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve said, look, God has already provided for us completely and we haven't done one lick of work yet. Adam and Eve jumped into their first week of work from a place of rest. They did not get to Friday, dying to get some rest. Have you ever heard someone say, I worked hard for this, I earned this. You ever said that to yourself? Okay. When we say this, we are saying, I brought this to myself. I'm responsible for what I have. And what we forget when we make these statements is that if we have ever had the physical strength to do anything at all, from blow our nose to drive a hundred miles, if we've ever had physical strength, we had it because God himself had given it to us. So Deuteronomy 8, this is a crucial passage that we just don't read much. Moses said this, he said... When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, you may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability... To produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. The Bible says that not only do we not provide for ourselves, but the strength we need to lift the hammer we lift is itself provided by our Heavenly Father. Okay? Okay? Working from a place of rest, folks, is almost totally foreign to the vast majority of people today, but this is exactly the type of rest that God intended us to experience. And the fact that we can't rest greatly impacts how we lead our family. It is not your responsibility to provide for your family. It's your responsibility to sit comfortably in God's arms and say, God will provide with or without me. But you know what? God's a worker, so I'm going to work too. We make our... Okay, five reasons we don't do this real quick. Five reasons we don't rest. Ready? Number one, we just distrust God. We just, just Many people are afraid that if they do not work hard enough or long enough or they do not please the right people in the right way, they may lose their jobs and as a result, they won't be able to provide for their families. And even when they have days off, these people do not truly rest as God intends because they fear they are missing something. So the first reason people do not rest today is because they don't trust God. They actually think they're providing for themselves. Secondly, we're running. Many people don't rest because busyness is their way of dealing with unwanted thoughts or emotions. We talked about that last night. For some of us, busyness is our way to stop thinking. If I just get to bed and I'm so exhausted I can't think, that's good. And we crash. So we don't rest because busyness is our way of running. We don't rest because we have a distorted view of our own identity. Our culture has so effectively convinced us again that we're human doings, not human beings. And if this is you, then true rest... Is a great way for you to be reminded of what the gospel is. What does the gospel say? The gospel says that God completely loves you and God has completely forgiven you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. The gospel says you can have a whole day of total uselessness and still have God's love, you can rest. Why? Because God doesn't love you because you do good. God loves you because you're made in His image, and He washed you clean by the blood of Christ. If you're a Christian, so sometimes we have a distorted view of our identity. We 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 think we're we're human doings, and we don't know who we are unless we're working. Uh, fourthly, we feel guilty. So maybe if you grew up with a father who always called you a lazy bum, and you don't want to be seen as a lazy bum, so you just you can't stop working. Or maybe you had a mom. Every time she saw you, uh, she made you feel guilty for doing something. For, she said, don't just sit there. Do something productive, quit taking up space, <laughs> right? Yeah, you live with that in your ear all the time. You're gonna feel guilty for sitting still. And then the last reason we don't rest is we feel we have too much on our plate. So maybe you're a single dad. Maybe you're a business owner. Maybe you're a single dad and a business owner. <laughs> maybe you have five kids. Maybe you're the preacher at a church. Maybe you have five kids and you're a preacher at a church. Okay? If you have too much on your plate, then it's all the more important that you structure a day of rest into your week because you cannot remain sane unless you do. Okay? Four things. Confessional relationships, meaningful prayer. What's the third thing I said? Scripture study and routine rest. We have to have a time in our week, every week, where we stop, and we rest, and we jump into work again from a place of calm, not a place of worry that maybe I won't have enough. That is not how God designed us to live. So the battle, the battle of the Christian life, folks, is the battle against Amalek, a battle you cannot win on your own. The rod that we hold up is Jesus Christ, and we hold it up with others, held him up with others, and we have to structure our lives in such a way that allows for Jesus to remain king of our lives. I'm going to add to this tomorrow a little bit. I'm out of time. Um, thank you. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, forgive us for thinking that we as men provide for ourselves. Lord, we don't provide for anything. You do, and you've promised to. And every ounce of energy, Lord, that enters our veins is energy supplied by you. Lord, help us to learn to rest and to lead and not to busy ourselves so hectically that we do not have time for the people you've called us to shepherd. God, help us to invite other men into our lives, into the battle against Amalek, to be honest, to be confessional, Help us to bring to you meaningfully all the things that uh, trouble us and not to simply give you our to-do list. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need your strength. We need you to be our strength, or we have none. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.
0: a great lesson. I am very appreciative of Sean and all the work he is doing here, and I personally feel convicted that my trust in God, in his rest, in his providence, is an area of my life that needs focus and needs more personal devotion. If this lesson was in some way encouraging to you or identified a way that you feel you need to grow and maybe this is something that someone else in your life can can grow and be encouraged from we again as always encourage you to share and if there's ever anything that you feel you need or you can connect with us we'd be happy to help we'd be happy to pray for you we'd be happy to support you in whatever way we can so feel free to reach out as always we thank you for listening and god bless